Hello, and welcome to Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heap, speaking to you from Austin, Texas. I've got Ryan Hemmer here with me. Hey, Ryan. Hey, John. And I've got Robin Bure here. Hey, Robin. Morning. Uh, on a scale of one to pregnant, Robin, how pregnant are you? Like... <clears throat> Nine point eight. <laughs> so so nigh all the way pregnant. Not quite all the way pregnant. Yeah, no, but, I think I've got like five days. Wow. Yeah. So so uh, Robin's taking one for the team here, and she's she's still with us, though she is great with child. Um, I thought you were great before the child, but that's oh, just me. Thanks. Well, I mean, society doesn't, and I felt just all that pressure to you know be a real woman and stuff. <laughs> well, here you are. You've arrived. Yeah. Congratulations. Uh, today we're going to talk about um, the sort of conundrum of how to think about the relationship between natural right and human historicity. If there is a kind of um, nature to the good that is transcultural, transhistorical, uh, or if um, ultimately sort of historicity and the concreteness of human living is the the sort of groundless ground of our um, moral deliberation and the like. But before we do that, for, for, for frivolity today, I wanted to talk about summer camp because I have it on good authority that both of you also went to summer camp in your youths. Is that correct? It is. Yes. So did, now I went to like uh, church camp in Santa Cruz, California. I went to a place called Frontier Ranch, which is owned and operated by the Evangelical Covenant Church, which is the denomination I grew up in. Did you, are we talking uh, church camp for both of you? Definitely church camp for me. Yeah, Robin? Uh, Yeah, although like it was run by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. So it wasn't, it wasn't attached to, it wasn't like a denominational church camp like most of them are. It was a kind of transdenominational university student organization summer camp is NAS. I went to, you know, I went to an intervarsity, I think it was an intervarsity camp. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was on Catalina Island called Campus by the Sea. And like you literally shook. (laughs) Uh, I think it was, uh, they had, what, they're not like, they're Buffalo or something on Catalina Island. Well, I just remember the Catalina Island episode of uh, Arrested Development where oh. you know, the, the sheep get into the photo booth with Buster. That's right. I forgot about that. My bad. Uh, I, I didn't pick up what you were putting down. Maybe because like getting the bison in the uh, photo booth would have been too much. That's true. And they're, they're protected. So I'm sure there's like there's rules because um, they were hunted to near extinction at one point. So now they're protected. So now they just like run the island. It's a whole mm-hmm. thing. Um, but yeah, you took the ferry right up to the dock and you were like stranded in this cove for a week with a bunch of, uh, you know, evangelical kids. It was a whole experience. Um, what was your church camp experience like, Ryan? Uh, so our, our church camp, which was, uh, run by the, the denomination I grew up in, uh, was actually quite lovely. Um, it's on a, a very, very pristine lake in Northern Minnesota. Um, the trade-off with pristine lakes. As opposed lakes to all Northern, those uh, dirty uh, lakes in Northern Well, Northern. no, no. I mean, the, this, this, is, this is a real thing. So Minnesota is the land of 10,000 lakes, but really all of the lakes you know, from central Minnesota down are mostly terrible. 
Are they uh, are they just sloughs basically? Like well, the, I mean, there's the the lakes themselves are actual lakes, but the the sediment structure is very different from northern Minnesota because in northern Minnesota you, you have you know granite and dolomite and and uh, up on the Iron Range, so um, you know you don't get out of control uh, seaweed bloom and algae all that stuff laughing i'm laughing that are that already this episode has devolved to sediment talk hot listen (laughs) you don't get leeches where you don't have sediment so exactly it's it's not unimportant i'm just but the trade-off is that though you can see 20 feet down because there's it's so clear because it's a sand bottom uh it just doesn't get warm ever and so in the middle of the July, it's still like, you know, 60 degrees in the water. Woo. So, yeah, that's the trade-off. So the camp was right, right on the shore of this gorgeous lake um, in the woods in northern Minnesota. Um, yeah, all, all the normal church camp stuff um, that, you know, sort of like sounds sounds and feels silly to talk about as an adult and you can sort of look back and go oh, i i can see there was a certain level of like uh coercion going on here but like so like it was like altar calls and the like yeah yeah, yeah but you know that's that's fine mm-hmm. uh i don't i don't i don't I, I was certainly never never felt like i was uh you know a sucker for some sort of uh, ad scam. So, uh, no, I have, I have like almost, almost exclusively pleasant memories of, of, uh, of my many years church camp. So, so what was your favorite camp song? Come on, you guys had camp songs. Yeah. Right? I mean, we did, but, um, the, you know, the, the, I mostly don't remember a lot of them, um, which is maybe embarrassing. Cause like, by the time, so like in like junior high summer camp is a lot of like silly camp songs. But I just don't really remember them. One of them was just like flowery songs stolen from Five Iron Frenzy that they would play. And I remember that because um, I was a huge Five Iron Frenzy fan. Uh, Christian ska band, if you don't know, uh, in high school. But then by the time I was in high school, it was a lot less of that and a lot more of like praise and worship chorus kind of things. Um, and I'm just not going to admit to having a favorite one of those, at least not a, not on tape. Um, I don't know, Ryan. Do you have, do you have uh, fond memories of singing songs at the campfire or whatever? Uh, you know, I think I think uh, um, the song selection, the whole canon, really was uh, was that same like Maranatha music from the '70s that you know had three guitar chords and some cheesy lines in them, but. Um, at lunch, especially, there would be sort of more traditional, like, uh, break out in the middle of lunch and make somebody do something silly kinds of songs, yeah. you know, to uh, use social pressure to get them to do the hula or something like that. Um, so, yeah, those, those were more fun, I would say. I just had an intense sense memory of breakfast uh, at summer camp, which was... Uh, Orange juice from, from concentrate, probably a little bit under diluted. Like it was potent. I remember that really distinctly. I remember um, the little like, like smoked sausages. Um, those, were, those were bomb. But the thing I remember most vividly because uh, I'm a, just a fat kid forever is that there was no limit on how much cereal you could eat 
and like I would I would get three. You know those like little mini, um, the like the little plastic bowl of cereal. The, the melamine, the camp bowls. Oh, so it was camp bowl, but these were actually like pre-packaged like plastic bowls, mm-hmm. like you would get at the Continental Breakfast at a Holiday Inn. Yeah, and it would just be stacked to the ceiling, and I would grab just like four cocoa puffs. <laughs> <laughs> and get one of those melamine camp bowls and empty them all into it and just eat cocoa puffs until until my mouth hurt uh yeah that that's an intense uh intense bit of nostalgia for me and i still can't eat cocoa puffs without uh thinking of camp you know every uh, once a decade when i have cocoa puffs but they always used to put little little tiny bowls of prunes out at breakfast <laughs> No, I don't know that anyone ever ate them except on a dare, but I just, I just, you know, I will always remember that they were thinking, you know, <laughs> we eat a lot of carbs around here, uh, a lot of beige in the diet. You've had uh, mac and cheese for four dinners every, in a row. No one's at home, so everyone's got, everyone's a little tense, not yeah. relaxing. We're probably going to have some problems. That's right. So uh, we, keep, we need to keep it moving. That's what oatmeal day with raisins in it was for. Like that's why they always served oatmeal. Yeah, like, day three so, of camp, right? At uh, at campus by the sea, the Catalina one. There was a day where you would hike from the cove up to the top of the ridge and then down into Avalon, like the little city on Catalina Island. And you had you had basically two options. It was orange slices and uh, hard boiled eggs, or it was these just big ass delicious cinnamon rolls. Uh, and you know, you're like 14, so what are you going to pick? Right. And so inevitably there's kids just like halfway up to the ridge, stepping off the trail to barf cinnamon roll all over the like Manzanita or whatever it was, <laughs> which I think was an act of revenge on the part of the camp staff, but I, I don't know for sure. But no, ours in our camp was super rad. So I went to, so InterVarsity runs camps all over Canada, probably the U S too, but I'm not as familiar with them. Well, Alberta has three. We have Pioneer Ranch, Pioneer Lodge, and um, Peace Country Pioneer. And uh, Pioneer Ranch and Pioneer Lodge are in like permanent locations, like they have standing buildings. And Peace Country, they just have like a barn and equipment, and they do all out trips, so all um, pack trips on horseback. Um, but because it's Alberta and it's all super cowboy, like like both of the camps I went to were ranch camps where horseback riding was a huge part of what we did that's cool so we had so both pioneer ranch and pioneer lodge have a full barn in the summer i think usually for a second i thought you were gonna say a full bar (laughs) yeah wow i was going to the wrong camp Uh, i mean it's still a cash bar but (laughs) but it's well stocked yeah i mean you have to be 13 to like get in (laughs) well yeah (laughs) so but they have a run usually run between 40 and 50 horses out of the lodge and the barn in it's usually 60 to 70 in the middle of summer out of the ranch horses. So, and because it's Alberta, like, especially when I was a child, like, it's like, it's just staffed by like straight up cowboys, right? So like every year, uh, Bryn Thiessen, who's a fairly, he's really well known in the cowboy poetry world. Um, cool. Which I once had to explain in detail to Matt Thollander, who didn't ex- think this was a thing. Um, but Beloved by dozens. Yeah, well, exactly. Hey, those cowboys have feelings, guys. Anyways, you know, he had a property really close to Pioneer Lodge, so he'd come and help out. And he's just like straight up, um, yeah, old school cowboy, like wears long underwear, like 
every day of the year um that they got when i was when i was a teen at some point they built a house that had indoor plumbing but for most of the time like when i was a kid when i knew him like they lived in a house that had just like the garden hose hooked up and that's the plumbing that they had inside um like log cabin kind of half dug down anyways lots of cattle um but it was really neat uh we sang a lot of camp songs like you know poem in the wine and uh poor little bug on the wall and bananas unite and all the classics i i so hope that there's someone listening to this podcast right now going me too because i have yeah. just less than no idea what you're talking about well someday when you're really lucky and we're at a cash bar i'll perform all of them for you. <laughs> terrific if we were really lucky, it would be not a cash bar, but well, let's not, let's not push our luck. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Be reasonable here. Um, but it was really neat. So I got, um, in the older like girls camp. Also, one of the other things that was really big at, at our camp was out trips. So when you were younger, like in element, like elementary school age, you would do like just an overnight trip. Um, so usually we had a set of like standing wall tents and teepees. And so they'd kind of like, you'd, you'd take like, oh, oh, we had a t- like teams of horses, like put you all in like the big wagon and you'd trundle out with your overnight gear and like cook supper over the fire and sleep in these teepees or wall tents and then come back. But when you got older, they like the high school camps were two weeks and um, the out trips were like, five or six days of that. And so you would do pack trips. So you'd learn actually how to put pack saddles on horses and do all that. Or um, I did a cattle drive two years in a row with a chuck wagon. So I learned how to like harness a team and drive a chuck wagon and and move cattle, which we moved for like ranchers in the area. Like we actually did work that needed to be done. That's awesome. Um, I mean, work that could have been done by like two experienced cowboys was done by like one experienced cowboy and like, eight girls but um uh still and uh um yeah they would do and then also if you weren't into horses like there was also um like canoe out trips and back and backpacking out trips and all of that sort of stuff and uh if you were like if you were like ryan and you hate animals there was there were like ryan and you hate animals (laughs) exactly i've ridden a horse (laughs) i've ridden a Um, horse with a baby robin how about that I mean, we're, hold on, were like, you holding the baby? I was holding the baby. The horse was pregnant? Or, oh, I see. You had a baby with you. Because um, someone was like, oh, this is your first time on a horse? Here, hold this baby. <laughs> that checks out. That's what I, that's what I would have done to you, Ryan. Um, but yeah, it was really cool. I got all my Canadian Horse Association levels at camp because they had actually like certified instructors. So you could actually do your like levels and learn how to like you know, jump over things and make your horse walk sideways and, you know. Did you have a Lisa Frank journal to write your feelings about horses down in? <laughs> uh, no, actually, I've never had a Lisa Frank journal and uh, <laughs> I didn't really have feelings. I, I spent my feelings time <laughs> mucking out the barn. <laughs> that was much more useful, but it was really cool. I learned how to build round pen. Like I learned how to like do fencing. Um, I started working for some of the ranchers I met through it, like just putting miles on green broke horses and checking fences and like counting cattle for them. Like they just give me a map and I'd go out all day by myself and like 
ride the fence line and make sure it wasn't broken and check. I got some out. bad news for you, Robin. This was not a summer camp. This was <laughs> a child labor force that you were <laughs> Something, something I, like that. It this was, was no- crazy illegal. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was so fun and so by the time and then when I got older I would start like I'd go to camp for a couple weeks and then I'd volunteer at camp for a couple weeks and like you said child labor yeah Um, but it was it was a really wonderful experience I know I say this a lot Robin but you've had a weird life like already (laughs) just pretty pretty weird I feel like it's all downhill from here though I mean I had a really cool life until I was like 21 and now it's like eh. yeah yeah I will. I will say uh, for for church camp, though. So, I mean, I, I I don't think about church camp very often when we're not talking about it on a podcast. But you know, I have friends that I made there that I would see once a year for a week when I was ten, and like we are all still friends. That's cool. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, like I th- you know I would say that probably the majority aren't like involved in in church in any meaningful way anymore. But uh, everyone still like lives in the greater twin cities area. We all still get together and hang out and mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So this, yeah, there, there could be cool things that happen there. It's not all just like Jesus camp documentary horror stories. Oh yeah. No, no. I've also like blocked the, like, I guess we had so much else going on. Like, I mean, like now that I think about it, we had like altar calls and bad worship music, but I really, I kind of, Unless someone brings it up, I forget about that part. Like I kind of blocked it from my my memory. Yeah, well, and and you know, my experience was like eighty percent of my cognitive ability was focused on getting a camp girlfriend, so I wasn't paying that much attention. No. I mean priorities. Oh, oh, oh being fourteen. Um, my biggest priority was like, we've got five sure. black bears in the horse pen. What are we going to do when we get to get our horses out this morning? <laughs> uh, yeah, that was not a part of my camp experience, I will, I confess. Um, well, now for something completely different. Um, I thought we were going to start exchanging black bear stories. <laughs> <laughs> That's the logical next step. I've got, I've got a handful. I have Me no too. doubt. <laughs> actually because my because my mom uh is something of an outdoorsy person i have uh more than a few myself from camping in places with uh bad uh garbage can practices um that will do it it sure will like like bears to a dumpster <laughs> so uh we we you know we talked um uh, a few weeks ago about in Dimensions of Meaning, the, the Lonergan essay we talked about, the, the shift from classical to modern ideals of science. And we mostly kept the discussion in terms of, we talked a little bit about constitution of meaning, but mostly in terms of the mediation of meaning, in terms of the sort of new horizon of human knowledge, of trying to understand um, not just the sort of ostensibly quote-unquote necessary part of the cosmos but a sense that the whole of the cosmos is contingent and so the effort is to explain all of the all of the available data um, and that this sort of this becomes a, a, a an ideal that unleashes a lot of um, scientific uh, effort and a lot of scientific uh, success but is a, a kind of fundamental transformation of the way in which we um, we think about the enterprise of investigation of, of the universe, both 
of the, the natural universe, but also of the, the human universe. Um, uh, and we're, we're going to talk a little later on about this, this essay by Lonergan, Natural Right and Historical Mindedness, that's in a third collection. Um, but he's got a line in that, a, a, a sort of rundown, <clears throat> where he, he sort of draws the through line from the quote-unquote hard sciences into the human sciences. I'm, I'm just going to read a little passage of it. Uh, the unique geometry of Euclid has yielded to the Riemannian manifold. You can have multiple geometries. Newtonian science has been pushed around by Maxwell, Einstein, Heisenberg to modify not merely physics, but the very notion of modern science. Concomitant with this transformation has been the even more radical transformation in human studies. Man is not to be known not only in his nature, excuse me, man is to be known not only in his nature, but also in his historicity, not only philosophically, but also historically, not only abstractly, but also concretely. Um, so uh, we've discussed before at some level the, the, the shift in method this requires for knowing human being. But one of the things we wanted to talk about today was then the difficulty of not just knowing what human beings have, as a matter of fact, become, but making some judgments about um, what it is we ought to do, what it, what it would be worthwhile for us to realize, what kind of practical and cultural and personal projects um, are good. And so it raises the question of the right or the good, which we can maybe distinguish if we want to. Um, and, you know, the, the way this is usually hashed out is in terms of uh, a pair of contradictories that either you're committed to the project of a natural law or a natural right, or you're committed to a, a sort of project of historicity. Um, and uh, I don't know, maybe we, can, maybe we can talk about sort of the ways in which that has manifest itself. I, um, Robin, you, you were, when we were prepping the show, you sort of raised some of these questions. Um, and, and you're, our, you're our, our proper ethics person. H how do you think about this problematic? Well, I mean, I think one of the things for me that becomes really important is, and even in how to get into this, is so you're talking about, I mean, you're talking about the relationship between essentially human nature and then human historicity, right? Um, and what I always then want to get really clear on is, well, what do you mean by human nature and human historicity? And what does it mean to posit them as, because it seems to me inherent, there's a bit of a difficulty when you posit them as, um, as distinct or opposite, um, because human nature, you only ever really know through human historicity is, is kind of what it strikes me. I mean, I'm, I'm just not a Kantian, so you're never going to you can you can never step outside of the human historicity when whenever you're talking about something like human nature um and then also uh, of which human historicity is kind of part of i haven't really thought too deeply about this but it strikes me that you also discuss like well human historicity what relationship is that to culture because if you're talking about um human nature in any sort of universalized way right you're you're talking about one that transcends time and culture um, I think, I, although I'm not sure that that has to be the case. I think you can talk about, um, well, it certainly erases the question of if you're going to say it transcends, 
How? Right. Like in what exactly? Manner? And in what way? And what can you kind of positively conclude about it? Or essentially, are your conclusions about human nature always um, partial or um, subject to rethinking? Which doesn't mean you have to ab- abandon it. There's a um, right, like there's people who operate essentially on the idea of strategic essentialism. So lots of feminists do it. Um, people in child ethics do it. Well, we. We can't say definitively exactly who who a child is and where like the perfect boundaries between child and not child or like exactly these essential things are are a woman and all of the other things aren't. But you can adopt kind of like a, a strategic essentialism which says, okay, like the boundaries might be a bit fuzzy or you know, we some of these things are subject to change over time, but you can also talk substantively about there being women as distinct from men or as distinct from you know, whatever else. And Legal so, scholars do this all the time, right? That they, they acknowledge that there, there could be sort of um, limit cases uh, that we'll, we'll, deal, we'll deal with those when the litigation comes up. But for, our, but for the purposes of the application of the law, in most cases, you have these kind of... Um, yeah, and I mean, I think, I mean, I think functionally people do that like morally all the time, right? Okay, like, well, if we're talking about women's rights, yes, there are some questions about like, exactly who is a woman or exactly what it means to be a woman and like you know um <laughs> we I, I i had quite a you know bit of trouble getting pregnant and someone asked me if that like made me feel like like i was less of a woman <laughs> and i just thought that had never crossed my mind but i guess that for some people that's like so intimately wrapped up in the definition that you know that, that's a valid could, question could for them it's a problem yeah yeah um and so I guess so I guess what I'm, so when I'm thinking about like something like human nature those are the questions like well if you if you're if you're putting natural right or human nature against human historicity well how are you arriving at that sense of human nature isn't it always historically conditioned and then also is it really um is it a universal tra- like is it a then becomes essentially an an unchanging definition that you arrive at at one point or is actually always a little bit of a strategic definition that that is going to be subject to change as human history changes. So um, Thomas Joseph White, in an article called, I think it's called The Pure Nature of Christology, he makes, he kind of uh, makes this, uh, this classical Aristotelian argument where he says, look, there has to be some distinct uh, an identifiable and intelligible um, unity uh, and content to human nature. And he explicitly engages with like Foucault and, and Nietzsche and such to say, um, if you're going to do an analysis of this kind of historical change um, of the kind that Foucaultian archaeology and the, and the like do, that change is only intelligible if there's a substance that undergoes change and that if that substance has a kind of unifying and identifying nature. So there has to be some, there has to be some part, even if it's sort of the, the abstract, uh, abstractly intelligible part of the thing, which remains the same through the change so that you can have something that changes. Um, and so that's, that's a kind of um, really robust form of the account of human nature, right? where you can still give an account of historicity, it's still something you can investigate, but it's always, its condition of possibility is that human beings have a fixed nature that doesn't change, um, 
that founds the substance that endures the change through time. Um, so that's like a really robust, realist, metaphysical account of it. But does it actually have to be unchanging? Because like, we, so we talk about species, right? So like the species of horse, since horses came up a whole bunch, has actually changed considerably over time. Now, I, and I realize we're just talking now, right now I'm just talking about like biological evolution. So obviously there's, there's some transposition that needs to happen, right? But so in one sense, there's like a continuing nature of horseness or, or what we've decided to, to, to identify as horses. But like there are historical forms of horses. Like it's, it's not, I guess I get, it's hard because I mean, you have to, there's breeds and that sort of stuff. But um, I'm not making myself very clear. No, no, you, you raise a good objection, um, right? Which is, which is that the... It doesn't um, have to be, uni- like, it doesn't have to be unchanging for it to be, like, talk about it as a substance. I guess that's my point. Well, and so his response would be, well, then what's changing, right? That the, 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 the heuristic that's operative is uh, an essentialist and substantialist one. And so um, if, if the nature of the thing has actually changed, then the previous what, the previous thing, isn't anymore. Mm-hmm. And there's a new thing. Because what it is is now different. Right. Um, and so if you're going to have continuity of change, right, if you're going to have human beings as the thing that undergoes historical change and not some other thing, um, if it's not uh, a kind of, if you don't have kind of sequences of the annihilation of species and the, and the appearance of new species, um, there has to be some kernel of wetness that perdures through right. Um, now this is like the great challenge. This I was just because now, now we're back to what's his face in his boats. Yeah, well, exactly right. So, oh. so the problematic is still an, an ancient one, a classical one. Mm. Um, and you know, you do have to remember that uh, Thomas Joseph White is a kind of convinced Aristotelian, and for Aristotle, I mean, he would I, he would be mad at me for putting it in these terms, but I do think you have to deal with the fact for Aristotle, like the cosmos is eternal, um, and so that it like just doesn't come up that once there were no trees. Um, so, but, but I want to get, I want to get from Aristotle to Kant too, right? I want to give a treatment of Kant because Kant does this differently. Kant, um, says, well, look, the, the physical world is, is governed by this kind of Newtonian, um, sort of necessary, uh, causal laws. Uh, he, I think he defines it. He defines nature as a, uh, I'm going to forget it. Uh, a system. Oh, I'm gonna forget. Oh, that's too bad. It's like a, a system of laws, essentially, is what a nature is. It's a system of something governed by laws, but in any case. Uh, and so he posits alongside physical nature, rational nature. And rational nature, too, is governed by laws. We have these in the form of the categories and the like. And the way natural right works is that there's a, uh, there's a kind of source of the rational, the unfolding of rational law, of rational system, of rational nature, and the, the, the human person is identical with it. And so I, I am autonomous in the sense that I give myself the law, and I'm independent in that uh, the, the physical nature doesn't have anything to do with it. And so I'm also independent. So freedom, freedom for, for Kant is both that I'm independent from the physical world 
but also that I'm autonomous. I, I'm self-legislating. And then, um, right, you get the various formulations of the categorical imperative um, where the reason that you have to will, uh, according to such a maxim as could be willed universally, is because all the other people that you're in uh, this kingdom of ends with, they are also sources of the natural law. And so if what you are, if the maxim according to which you're willing isn't universal, then you know it's, you know it's not in accord with your rational nature because everybody has the same rational nature. And so whatever circumstances... Well, all, all men. <laughs> indeed. Um, I actually don't know with Kant on that question. Um, it's one really interesting one because in anthropology, from a pragmatic point of view, like he's clearly a specious. Like yeah. he's clearly saying like all people have this. And yet over and over he states like that women and children are um, really incapable of, of, of the forming the law for themselves. And women need the guidance of men. And so um, I find Kant really interesting on this point because he's, because he's taking a metaphysical stance he is a speciest. All human beings are autonomous in this way, but he can't really like square that against essentially his cultural heritage. And so like, it's really interesting squaring his specious things against like the really kind of hilariously objectionable things he says about both women and children in anthropology. Mm. Like it's, um, I, th I think it remains like an unanswered question with Kant because in theory, in theory, um, absolutely applies to all humans but um in his actual writings it doesn't yeah huh well in any case um the 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 idea then right is that it doesn't really matter what the circumstances are it doesn't matter sort of where you are on the the convergence of of human uh human willing towards the kingdom of ends as long you know as long as you will in accordance with the categorical imperative and with the dictates of reason you're, you're doing you're doing the right right you're doing what's good and if you're and uh, and really what like what culture you're in what continent you're on what where you are in history none of that matters because the categories by which you self-legislate are a priori and because they're a priori and they're sort of um, absolutely a priori it couldn't it couldn't possibly matter what circumstances you're in um, because the thing that is the source of the autonomy, which is the source of the freedom, which is the source of the moral responsibility, it's prior to any experience. Um, so that's one side of the coin. Um, right, which is a side of the coin, like, at least for me, and maybe it's my, you know, own intellectual and cultural heritage, like, seems to be quite easy to deny. I think where, like, where my questions really lie is, well, how do we, like, how do we know it's not all historicity or not all culture? Like, so on, I, I think my questions lie more on the what, Nietzschean side, I guess you could say that. Like, how do we know that we can actually talk about human nature in any sort of substantive way where there is, even if not like a perfect identifiable, like identifiable Aristotelian substance, there's some sort of essentially um, historical continuity that's not just in name. So before we do that, Ryan, would you mind giving a kind of like quick spiel on the sort of Nietzschean Foucauldian alternative here? Um, I mean, <laughs> this, this is actually a question I have about Nietzsche because Nietzsche often gets trotted out here as kind of the the early, relatively early 
you know, post Kant, but, but before the kind of explosion of uh, historical consciousness in the 19th century, um, he gets trotted out as kind of like the, the, uh, the source, the, the sort of godfather of this tradition. And yet, you know, you go and you read an essay like The Uses and Abuses of History. And he's talk, he talks there like, like a very anxious classicist. You know, he's, he's going on and on about philology and about all of these, these sort of new methods of historical study and investigation. And he seems actually like really disturbed by the, the possibility of sort of radical historical relativism that he sees as kind of the, the sort of inevitable um, sort of entailment of this procedure. And then he sort of puts forward this more traditionally Nietzschean call for sort of like the, the greatness of the classical world, right? The, the kind of um, recovery of the sort of um, moral and intellectual certainty of, of the, the pagan Greeks um, and, and, a, and a sort of clarion call to recover that kind of boldness and audacity and uh, and whatnot, sort of in this sort of new moment of uh, where we're sort of staring down the barrel of um, this kind of anemic historical relativism. And so it's it's actually not always to me clear that Nietzsche really um, is playing the role that he's often cast in um, as we as we sort of look back on on the 19th century and and the break that it represents with. Um, the more essentialist procedures of traditional natural right. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, so there's a couple things there. So, so one is, uh, I think it's underappreciated in, in, I don't know, in your, your sophomore year seminar philosophy class sort of style of account of these things, um, which, you know, I know we flirt with here. Uh, it's, it's underappreciated the way in which Nietzsche is really worried about nihilism. Yes. Um, that that if this if the sort of naive um, commitments to, to what now we would call sort of bourgeois sort of nominal Christianity fall away, that what's left is um, really I mean really the kind of nihilism uh, the nihilism of the sophist, which is an, a nihilism that actually results in a kind of um, uh, uncritical traditionalism. Right. So what, so, you know, so when the madman descends from the mountain, says, God is dead and you've killed him. The people just blink at him like, okay. <laughs> you know? uh, all right. Um, so he's worried about nihilism in that way. And I think that's, that's a point well taken. But when you push in, I think you, you do find seeds of these later analyses, right? So that when you talk about the use and abuse of history, the use and abuse of history, the thing it's measured against is sort of life where what life really means is power. Um, right. And so it's a matter of the kind of what, what's, what's driving the boldness of this classical thing. Well, it's understanding virtue, not according to slave morality. It's understanding virtue in its older sense, which is power. Um, and so there's a, he does think, seem to think, at least, you know, I'm no great reader of Nietzsche, so take this with a grain of salt, but he does seem to think that there's a kind of, internal normativity there's a kind of autonomy in vitality 
and the will to power. So it's not totally normless, right? It's not just nihilism for Nietzsche. Um, but nonetheless, within the discernment of, okay, how are we going to realize this sort of boldness of the classical world? Um, there are some undecidable sort of prejudices that you just have to kind of pick one. So, I mean, the famous one is between the Dionysian and the Apollonian, right? Where um, the sort of orderliness uh, and virtue in what becomes the Socratic and Platonic and Aristotelian and Christian senses, um, like there's no ground to it for Nietzsche. You've, you've, you've just picked it and you could pick something else. You could pick sort of the Bacchanal. Um, and, and so there too, right, there's uh, autonomy is at, at stake, but it's the, auto- it's the autonomy of the self-assertion of vital power. And so while he um, has all those anxieties about nihilism, I think nonetheless, there is still, uh, there, there, there's still the seeds of a more radical historicity where um, one has to survey one's historical circumstances um, and one is, has some, some liberty some autonomy with which to make decisions about how to construct a life in, in light of them. And, um, and there isn't an appeal to some, some grund, right? There's, there's, there isn't an appeal to a kind of unambiguous nature to settle those matters from which you can deduce how you ought to live. Uh, and I no, think quite, that, quite. So, so, I mean, I, I, I guess the, the question I would have then is, um, you know, the, 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 the normal sort of narratives of modernity, right? You get, you get Descartes and Kant that sort of play these kind of pivotal roles um, as the sort of transition figures from the kind of metaphysics of the past to the history of the present. Um, but they're, ni- neither of them really get you to history. Um, but both of them are still very much metaphysicians. But something sort of happens, some, there's, there's some kind of real shift that does in fact occur. I mean, Lonergan always talks about it with Hegel, actually, that, that Hegel, for the first time, you get the transition from substance to subject. Uh, but I mean, if you go back and you read like Hegel's lectures in the history of philosophy, I mean, he goes back to uh, ancient Greece and says, you know, why are the Greeks so obsessed about nature? Why are they so interested in what in the kind of like, um, transcultural essence that um, isn't uh, doesn't suffer a change from the vicissitudes of time and place because they were you know seafarers and they got around the Mediterranean and they saw a bunch of people who looked different than them and talked different than them and had these um, completely alien customs uh, and so in the midst of that real and concrete and sort of visceral and physical encounter with difference they began to ask the question of the universal. Right. It's, it's why the Republic uh, begins with the descent to the Piraeus and the like quizzical question about, man, I hear the Thracians are just as good at us in the horse race. <laughs> Have you heard about this? That doesn't seem right, does it? But in a, in a certain respect, that is also the, the question of the 19th century, right? The, the, the uh, tools of historical investigation, the uh, advances in, in travel and globe trotting, sort of renew that encounter with difference beyond the kind of hermetic seal of Europe. 
Right. Well, and, and uh, something and so, we might come back to, uh, come back to if we have time also is, um, and to, to be a little more frank about it too, like colonialism. Right? Absolutely. Well, right. that's the same problem with right. that angle talking about with Greece. So. Yeah. So like not, not just, yeah, not, not just sort of the grand tour. Right? No, no, it is, it is explicitly a colonial. Um, and so, and so all reality. the analysis. And so all the analyses of the role that race well, plays. Well, I mean, yeah, historicity allows you to say, well, like, our culture is just better than theirs because, like, you know, look at all these concrete examples of how we've progressed in ways that they haven't. And if you have well, a really good excuse, too, for ignoring the universal, then it's a lot easier to just subjugate a whole group. Or the opposite, right? Or the opposite happens where um, you say, well, you know, look, they just do things different around there. Um, and if that's the way that, that, if that's the way women live there, or if that's the way children are treated, well, that's just their culture. Right. Um, so that, I mean, it cuts both ways on that point, but, but sorry, Ryan, we cut you off. No, that's, I mean, that's, that's the kind of, um, that's the situation out of which a lot of the, uh, mid and later 19th century and then 20th century philosophy and theology is really contending with. And so your options really are the kind of um, retrieval of Aristotelian intellectual procedure whereby you attend to all of that concreteness um, and then you abstract from it uh, to try to find sort of the residue or the remainder um, that, it, that is going to be the same, that it's going to have mobility and durability uh, across time and place, and then you sort of posit that residue as a nature whether you're talking about a, an individual person or you're talking about a culture, um, or, or you don't do that procedure. You follow the, new, the sort of newer historiographical procedures where instead of um, abstracting from that concreteness to find what is universal, uh, you simply give up the idea of abstract universality as a sort of uh, procedure or possibility, and you attend ever more rigorously to the concreteness of, of time and space. and uh, you know, that, that raises all kinds of questions for the possibility of theology, the possibility of philosophy, um, if there can be no um, transcultural, transpersonal, transnatural element, uh, if there can be no historical right, if there is only the historically minded, um, can there be a philosophy or a theology or, or a, a, a global universal religion at all? Um, and you know, the battle lines get drawn and partisans emerge on both sides. And I think where, where somebody like Lonergan wants to enter the fray is to, um, to take what he finds as the, the correct positional organizing insight of sort of both parties, but to integrate them into a sort of wider and quite different horizon um, in order, in order to actually make some progress on this problem, instead of just trying to uh, sort of get one's own constituency big enough and large enough to exert power over the other. So, so that takes us that takes us to our our our, our essay here. We're looking at so again, it's it's natural right and historical mindedness. It's, you can find it in a third collection. Um, I've got the PDF with paginations from the the old version of that, but there's a collected works version now. Uh, this was originally an address given at the 51st annual meeting of the American Catholic Philosophical Association in 1977 at their Detroit meeting. And um, we don't have time to go through it in detail. As, as 
has happened to us a few times now. We pick these essays and then we recall that Lonergan does just everything in it. Um, but I, I want to direct us to something that's that I find interesting about it is that Lonergan's procedure is going to be Aristotelian, but it's not going to lead to the sort of neo-scholastic or neo-Aristotelian approach, strategy, what have you, of um, subordinating the historical to some kind of uh, essentialist account of human nature. Um, though he's though he is going to give an account of human nature, um, but he's going to give one that is that is not uh, separate from historicity, but is integral with it. Um, and it, he's he's really uh, threading a fine needle here. Sorry, Robin, you were going to say something. I was just going to say, I, I mean, I just don't know Lonergan as well as you two, but I mean, once he gets to his transcend, like kind of four levels of intentional consciousness, and kind of. Um, the human person is self-transcendent. I mean, don't you think he subordinates the rest to that account? Like, I'm, I'm, then everything kind of flows from that, and the and that account of human nature and like human knowing becomes it seems well, so to function as like as like the determining factor for everything else, including method, including like how you study history. And yeah, so I'm just not entirely mm -hmm. sure how he avoids the subordination. Okay. So, um, and that's, that's the, that's the, the, the fineness of the needle on this point. Um, so part of the, part of the difficulty here is that, um, Lonergan's procedure isn't going to be deductive, but it's still going to be Aristotelian. And so he says, well, look, Aristotle, uh, well, actually, let me take a step back. Um, there's a great line in Insight that I try out all the time where he says, uh, variations are evidence of a variable. And this to me seems to be the way that Lonergan is able to transpose from the classical ideal of science into the modern ideal of science and still carry forward a basic Aristotelian insight. Um, that when we talk about a principle, uh, and, in, and indeed a natural principle, the natural principle doesn't unfold uh, in, according to a modern ideal of science, uh, according to the deduction of its implicit content, but rather it unfolds as the, as the variable that is the source of variations. And um, and so, so he says here on, this is on 172 in the old version, it's under the heading natural right in historicity. And he talks about how um, underneath the manifold of human lifestyles, there existed a component or factor that possessed the claims to universality and permanence of nature itself, this sort of claim of natural right. However, he says, this component or factor admits two interpretations. It may, on the first interpretation, be placed in universal propositions, self-evident truths, naturally known certitude. That's a definitions, essentially. On the other hand, it may be placed in nature itself. In nature not as abstractly conceived, but as concretely operating. It is, I believe, the second alternative that has to be envisaged if we are to determine norms in historicity. Um, so that's the first part, 
is that it, this isn't going to be a deduction from proposition self-evident truths, naturally known certitudes, but rather it's going to be the analysis of something operative in the concrete. So it's a, it's a variable, not an essence. Correct. Um, well, I mean, he would say, uh, he would say yes, right? <laughs> well, yeah, because, well, because once you do the, like, the reordering of the world from the classical to the empirical, everything, is, everything that's essential is actually right. variable because of what we talked about with the clovers and the norms and the Precisely. that sort of stuff in an episode back in the fall. Yes, exactly. So then he says, now Aristotle defined a nature as an imminent principle of movement and rest. Uh, in human beings, such a principle is the human spirit as raising and answering questions. As raising questions, it is an imminent principle of movement. As answering questions and doing so satisfactorily, it is an imminent principle of rest. So, the, what's going to happen then is, is Lonergan is going to give his usual cognitional theory in terms of questions, right? You're having experiences and you ask, what is it? Why is it? What's going on? And so forth. You have questions for reflection, right? Is it so? Is this true? Is my account correct? And then you have questions for deliberation. You know, is this worth doing? Is this good? Is this right? And so forth. Um, and the, the questions are going to be mobilizing, right? To investigate, to verify, to deliberate. And then the answers are going to be a, a principle of rest, right? You have your idea, you verify that it's correct. You don't have to keep searching. You have your answer and it's true. And then also, right, you come to some decision. Yeah, this is worth doing. And then you settle into doing it. Um, and so is historicity subordinated by Lonergan to that? Yes, in the sort of literal sense of, of put under its order. Um, that there's going to be a kind of authentic way of being historical, of, being, of having historicity, of being historical. Um, that's a matter of being attentive and intelligent and reasonable and responsible. And then history can be dialectical because you can also not be those things and yet still do stuff. Um, and so you can sow irrationality and irresponsibility into historical process and all the fun things that follow from that. Um, so yes, it's subordinated to it. But the thing about those questions is for Lonergan, at the root of all those questions, is the intending intention of being. That in principle, there's nothing about which I cannot at least ask. And so part of the reason that it's, if you have a, a, a logical deductivist ideal of how, it's, of how historicity is subordinated to this, um, you're going to be hugely frustrated by this because it's not going to, you can't deduce a content from it. Right? Because it's, uh, all of the questions intend the entirety of being. So like the answer, the, the thing you can deduce from it is that like the cosmos have an intelligible and worthwhile order that, right? Um, like that's the anticipation that you can deduce from it, which like is maybe helpful if, if you're so like you've so uh, like given yourself over to, to nihilism that you think like just atoms in the void and like who gives a shit. Um, but if you care enough to ask the questions, right, you, you're operating on the assumption that the universe is intelligible and is worthwhile and that it matters. Um, but that's it, right? right? After that, after, after that uh, yeah, all you have is the transcendental precepts. 
like be intelligent, be, in, uh, be attentive, intelligent, reasonable, and responsible. Um, and so historicity, yes, is subordinated to that, but again, not in a, uh, not in a d- deductivist way, not in a way that um, would let you figure out like what we're going to do on Tuesday at 3 p.m. Right. At that, at that point, you know, the, the only advice it gives you is, well, we need to pay attention and we need to ask questions and answer them and check that our answers are correct. And then like deliberate about the worthwhileness of what we're doing. And that's it. That's all you get. Um, now the, the question is like, is that enough? Um, is, you know, is that sufficient as an account of that, which is the, the, the enduring variable that generates the variations? I don't know. Um, I can under, I can certainly understand why someone would read that and go, well, that doesn't help me at all. Right. I want to know what I need to do. Um, or even just to say, well, like, how do we know that that variable is real as opposed to functional? What do you mean by that distinction? Well, I mean, like, does it exist or is it an arbitrary category we've selected to study, essentially, right? Like, I mean, you can choose, we'll go back to species, right? Like, there's a whole argument whether species exist. So, like, does, do horses exist as an entity or not? Like, is there, is there actually a variable you can talk about that has kind of real substance? Or do we just arbitrarily choose certain lines of demarcation and study it according to that? Because functionally, we have to study it according to something. Um, which is a question I don't even know if you can ever answer. But, you know, so when it comes to like natural right as one of these variables, which you can study historically, how do you know that it's not just we've chosen certain demarcations to study it by, or it's kind of a, I hate the word real in this sense, because I, I kind of need a better one, but I guess arbitrary or grounded in fact, maybe like, um, I'm still not quite entirely sure how you decide how I, you know, I guess. So I, I think my, I, I mean, I'm writing a dissertation where I argue at bottom, uh, that, that question is um, because the intelligible and valuational ground of the universe is transcendent, that question, you have to operate on the assumption that that question has an answer, which is to operate on the assumption that when you, um, when you make true judgments and when you make good decisions, right decisions, um, you apprehend the true and the good respectively and you you really apprehend them but in order to like get going on that process you have to operate as though the process will lead you there um and so there's a kind of philosophical undecidability to those questions because the ground of the ground of the answer to those questions is transcendent um and so like i think there's a there's a way in which you can operate on the assumption that it's just functionalist and and you'll be proven right every time <laughs> right um but but if you really if you if you are committed to um what i think is borne out by the data that when you know what you know is being and and by data there i mean like the data of consciousness right that that when you ask the question 
are true judgments possible? The answer to that question is yes. And then the answer to like, how do you know is I just made one. Um, right. And you can be, you can be skeptical with regard to that, but to be skeptical is to also make a pre-philosophical decision that like the practices of inquiry, whether they're scientific or, um, moral and political are not worth doing. Right. To be skeptical is to say, look, you can't be, be, you can't, you can't know for sure. So, you know, why bother? Don't, don't worry yourself about that question. Cause you can't know for sure. I don't know, Ryan, what do you think of that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you can, you can take one of two routes with, with that. You can either, um, you can either do what you just did and sort of bring the question back to really what is a pre-philosophical matter. And the pre-philosophical matter is this really basic decision um, that one either makes that um, human inquiry is the sort of um, first and only instance of intelligence and intelligibility in the universe that is basically meaningless uh, and void of intellectual process. And that human deliberation is the first instance of um, of morality in the universe and that the universe is basically amoral. And you just kind of have to make the decision one way or the other in order to do anything at all. Right. Um, but you can also do the procedure operationally, right? You can actually, uh, pay attention to yourself and pay attention to those around you and pay attention to what they actually do and say and uh, the questions they ask and the procedures according to which they um, seek answers. And if you do that, uh, and, and this is what Lonergan is trying to point out time and again, what you'll find is that the structure of that, the sort of self-assembling normative structure of that um, is a priori in this respect, not as a condition of possibility, um, but as something that is common to uh, every set of human circumstances, um, that there is, there is no other way of, of um, being human in history other than uh, the sort of operative process of being a human in history. And so... Uh, can can it, he can call that a nature, and and posit its um, sort of immutability, because anything that would be involved in its revision would be the same process and procedure of inquiry that he's just laid out, um, and so it's not uh, it's not immutable because of the motion of the spheres, um, it's immutable because. Um, the process and the structure itself would be the basis of its revision. Uh, and, and maybe that for a, a sort of classical philosopher is a rather thin view of what a nature is. Um, but I think it has the advantage, one, of being true. Um, but, but secondly, it, it means that the question of history is no, is no longer um, accidental to the question of nature but also that the question of history doesn't overdetermine and so render irrelevant and in fact impossible the question of nature. And so um, you can write an essay called Natural Right 
and historical mindedness. And what you mean by that is not um, you two paths diverging in the woods, right? Uh, but but uh, an integral philosophical relationship between what uh, endures with uh, unity and identity through time in a way that is um, immutable uh, and that uh, endures through time as a principle that makes time meaningful and so makes of it history. Uh, And that that seems to me a a rather profound uh, achievement, Um, one that probably doesn't doesn't get... um, doesn't get the attention that it deserves because the, the seemingly stark alternatives invite uh, so much partisanship, either the kind of, of um, nostalgic partisanship that doubles down on uh, deductivism uh, and essentialism or a kind of uh, radical revision of being philosophical at all. Um. So we need to wrap up, but I want to read a little quote from the very end of the essay. Um, we did not at all do the, the like details of this essay justice. There's a whole account of dialectic within historical process, and there's just all kinds of stuff here. But um, fundamentally, the dialectic is uh, a dialectic between the, the principle of a kind of authentic historicity and then the, its absence. But, and this is on the very last page, beyond dialectic, there is dialogue. Dialectic describes concrete process in which intelligence and obtuseness, reasonableness and silliness, responsibility and sin, love and hatred, commingle and conflict. But the very people that investigate the dialectic of history also are part of that dialectic, and even in their investigating, represent its contradictories. To their work, too, the dialectic is to be applied. But it can be more helpful, especially when oppositions are less radical, for the investigators to move beyond dialectic to dialogue, to transpose issues from a conflict of statements to an encounter of persons. For every person is an embodiment of natural right. Every person can reveal to any other his natural propensity to seek understanding, to judge reasonably, to evaluate fairly, to be open to friendship. While the dialectic of history coldly relates our conflicts, dialogue adds the principle that promotes us to cure them, the natural right that is the inmost core of our being. All right. So, um, and, and that, that is important uh, in a full circle way because the essay begins with the question of collective responsibility, mm-hmm. of, of how to be um, moral and responsible together uh, in historical process. And by the end of the essay, he finally gives you at least an, an, an instance or example of what that might mean. Right. Well, Robin, I'm sure we didn't satisfy all of your questions, but it's time to go. Uh, thanks for listening to systematically this week. If you want to send us an email and complain about our treatment of Nietzsche, you can find us, uh, systematically podcast at gmail.com uh we've let treasures old and new fall by the wayside except when we have guests but if you want to contribute to that you can uh you can also find us on twitter systematic or excuse me at systematic pod rather um we have a patreon we've got a handful of folks who are helping support the show financially and if you want to join them it's 
patreon.com slash systematically. Our intro and outro music are, as always, track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. And as you go into this week, be responsible. Bye now. Thank you.